Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. The news this week, financial services giant Fidelity is uh, taking a huge step into the world of cryptocurrency. It announced the launch of a separate company called Fidelity Digital Asset Services. It is designed to handle cryptocurrency custody and trade execution for institutional investors. And I think there's probably no one better to comment on this than Danny Masters. Danny Masters is, of course, the chairman of CoinShares. He is previously the head of J.P. Morgan's New York energy trading business before he set up his own commodity funds. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Danny, thank you very much for coming in. What was your reaction when you heard that Fidelity was offering these kinds of services? About time. Uh, Abby Cohen's been at the forefront uh, of distributed ledger technology for some time. Uh, we've interacted with Fidelity across uh, multiple vectors. Um, Johnson. Abby Johnson, excuse Beg me. Beg pardon. Yeah, go Abby ahead. Johnson, uh, you're right. And she, um, I think what, you know, in, in, in concert with her, her founding grandfather's view about finances, um, you know, they think big and they think forward. And um, she sees this as being a new industry and a new way to form capital and distribute capital. Um, and I think they're going to do very well with that. Do you still think, given all the volatility that we've seen in cryptocurrencies this year, that this asset class is sort of a new commodity of sorts and a new store of wealth? I think the narrative changes very rapidly in crypto. It is an evolutionary uh, process for sure, maybe a revolutionary process. Uh, and the way I'm currently thinking is really in uh, that what is happening now and, and the timely entry of Fidelity and others uh, is really the what I call the third wave of the crypto uh, movement. First wave, Bitcoin arrives. Uh, it disrupts gold and money. Uh, the second wave, we see Ethereum, a new blockchain that has the ability to form capital. That happens very rapidly and in a, in a very large uh, way. Uh, the SEC don't like that. We're talking initial coin offerings. Initial yeah. coin offerings. Uh, the SEC don't like that for obvious reasons, and that comes to essentially a screeching halt. Third wave, in my opinion, will be uh, the so-called security token. So you cannot do an initial coin offering with ease anymore, but you can do a security token. What does that mean? Uh, that will be, in the first instance, one of the exemptions from the Securities Act, either a Reg A, an A+, Reg D, Reg S, uh, whereby a token will, will represent equity in a, a private company uh, and it will exist in this space between what has traditionally been private companies and public companies. And it'll be a hybrid, uh, which is transparent and liquid and transferable. Why do we need this? Well, I think you, for the average investor um, to buy into a fully publicly listed company, you know, the S&P multiple will be around 25 PE right now. If you buy into a private company, you might get a 5 to 10 PE. So there, there is potentially a tremendous value to be accrued, accrued to a smaller investor uh, coming in at the lower end of that, of that PE spread because those assets are typically not available to the average person. I want to ask you about something having to do with access because uh, if, and, and I note from your website, if you have a broker mm -hmm. that already does business on the NASDAQ in Sweden, mm -hmm. 
you already have pretty much access to a variety of trackers for cryptocurrencies. There's the Bitcoin tracker one, there's one in euros. There's also the Ether tracker one and one in euros. What have you learned from that experience? It's been a, XBT provider has been a, a, a wonderful um, journey for us. You know, we, we, we started very small and we got, uh, I think we peaked at around 1.7 billion and the prices were high last year and obviously it's receded with the price drop. Um, it's been an interesting uh, episode and, and, and journey with NASDAQ themselves um, because it's a controversial asset class. It has characteristics like security um, of the assets themselves, which don't exist uh, in other asset classes. Uh, I think you've seen NASDAQ themselves now starting to talk about security token exchanges as well uh, going forward. So, you know, it was a, an embryonic and early uh, adoption uh, and it got a lot of traction. And I think it's going to be the first of not only trackers in other markets and other jurisdictions on Bitcoin and other cryptos, um, but I think it will be the it will prove to be the precursor to the larger exchanges actually looking at security token markets themselves. So how does blockchain fit into these sort of securities token mm -hmm. markets? I mean, because just listening to it, it sounds like it's a way to create a token that is outside of the public equity regulatory structure. But how does blockchain fit into sure. it? It's not actually outside of the regulatory structure, it's outside of the piping and infrastructure of uh, the conventional marketplace. So um, it, when you look at how the Chicago Merck or the New York Stock Exchange work, uh, there is a bunch of electronic piping that goes around making the transfer uh, and the trading of these shares happen. Um, and that is a, a considerable infrastructure. And there has been talk about deploying distributed ledger technologies to these exchanges in order to get the advantages of distributed ledger technology. What are the advantages? They are real-time settlement, low latency, transferability, um, portability. An existential crisis for BNY Mellon. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So, so those are the advantages, but, but rather than re-engineer the CME so that they rip out all their old systems and put in distributed ledger databases and so on, what you do is you turn securities into cryptos and you, turn them, you trade them on crypto exchanges. So we're seeing this with a bunch of companies out there. They're taking, as I said in an example before, the Reg D environment, creating a, a, a security and a token, we'll have an ISIN, but it will trade in a some sort of walled garden that will look like a crypto exchange. You've seen Coinbase do this. Um, the structure that they're putting together is a registered broker dealer, uh, a, a registered investment advisor in all 50 states, and an, an automated tra an alternative trading system. And once you put those three things together, plus their 12 and a half million customers, they have their own stock market. And once they issue tokens on it, this is a competitor to NICE and NASDAQ. Just quickly, should you mine or should you buy if you're an individual to learn about this marketplace? Uh, buy. Okay. Don't go into the mining business. I think uh, for coin shares at least, uh, you know, we, we, we occupy multiple verticals in this uh, digital asset space. The one thing we don't do directly is mining. Uh, it's a very complex calculation. Uh, in order to figure out the economics of mining. It is also something of an arms race when it comes to the chips and the technology that go with it. And we don't really want to play in that space.
Danny Masters, a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming in. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Danny Masters is chair of CoinShares Group, which oversees about a billion dollars or more than a billion dollars of crypto assets uh, from London, although he joins us here in our 1130 studios. And of course, he is the former global head of energy and trading at the predecessor of JP Morgan and then the JP Morgan uh, Unix. Pim, yesterday news came out that Uber Technologies is increasing the size of its debut bond offering since there just is so much demand. They're going from $1.5 billion to $2 billion of bonds. Joining us now, Kathleen Gaffney, co-director of Diversified Fixed Income and Eaton Vance, uh, and a guru in all things fixed income and credit. Kathleen, are you out there buying these Uber bonds? We are not. Uh, as, as tantalizing as 8% is, 8% comes with a whole lot of risk about the future. Uh, I tend to be very cynical about new issue in general. The bankers have a good sense of timing, which is not in the favor of investors. Good sense of timing means knows when they can get the perfect pricing for the issuer, but probably the worst pricing for the investor. But what does this tell you that there is so much demand for this bond offering from a company that is burning cash and, uh, and has a lot of sort of hair around it? It's tough because there aren't a lot of options. There isn't a lot of supply. And so if you have to be invested in high yield, and those are the buyers, high yield funds in general, you've got to buy what's coming to market. And you can make the case that it's good relative value. You're getting paid quite a bit, but 8% may not cover the risks that we see down the road if Uber isn't able to execute perfectly. I don't know how many new young companies have been able to pull off executing things perfectly. Even at my old age, I'm not executing things perfectly. Oh, stop. (laughs) (laughs) I want to put a larger question to you, which is that the total U.S. debt-to-GDP ratio is currently around 340%. And if you include state, local debt, contingent liabilities, this goes above 500%. Oh, yes. Add in global debt to GDP has surged. It's over $70 trillion was added to global debt total since 2008. Why would people be buying an asset that has just swamped the market with supply? It isn't rational in the long run, but in the short term, and if you're only short term oriented, you can make that case. That's the trouble that investors are going to get into, that if you only think about the short term, your 8% is going to be a lot lower in terms of your real return down the road. Pay attention to where rates are headed long term. It's 8% is do, a bargain. Do you believe, do you believe that, institu- well, well, it's could have divided, institutional investors, do you believe they recognize the risks or do they see that they can get out? I think they think they can get out, um, but I also think they operate in a short-term environment where their incentives are to make it through this year. They're not thinking about what do I ultimately want to be able to deliver? We have come so far away from what 
our jobs ultimately are to do, uh, that we work in very narrow uh, spaces. Well, but hold on a second, because a lot of people have been sort of foretelling gloom and doom since 2012, 2013, given how low rates were going. And short term turned out to be five years, yeah. at least six years. So, you know, what is short term, especially if people don't foresee a downturn? That That is a very good point. And I think it's part of what keeps people anchored um, in the old ways and not thinking about how differently the market could be. The biggest signal has been the correlation between stocks and bonds of late. We saw it in February, stocks sold off, bonds were essentially flat when they should have rallied. It happened again in the last few weeks when we saw the equity vol pick up significantly, but treasury vol and and in fact credit vol picked up very little. So it's not the the income, the carry, isn't serving the role that it did. And that anchor to windward, that flight to quality, is not working the way that it did. So what's your best bet right now, given the changing environment? It is to look, ab- to look abroad, to look away from the U.S., to look at where there's real growth and positive fundamentals and positive economic policy. So emerging markets, I continue to harp on that, but I think that's where you're seeing inflation coming down, reforms being put in place. It's not widespread. There are still countries that are struggling to become more mainstream, but there are areas of the world, particularly Latin America, that look attractive. And I think Asia down the road, because of the... um, differences, the long-term tension that is increasing between the U.S. and China, that is going to have some significant implications for countries in Asia that aren't China that will benefit from our need to keep our tech capabilities close to home and China racing for made in 2025. So lots of long-term implications that favor emerging markets. We've got to leave it there, but we'd love to have you back and spend more time. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks, Pam. Kathleen Gaffney, co-director of Diversified Fixed Income at Eaton Vance on the world's fixed income markets. Well, Canada is the second country in the world to legalize recreational marijuana, just after Uruguay. And here to tell us about perhaps some of the beneficiaries is Anurag Rana, our senior software and IT services analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Anurag, the company Shopify, connect Shopify with the legalization of recreational pot. Uh, hi, Pim. Isn't it, isn't it interesting that IBM's down 7% and we are talking uh, cannabis? But, um, you know, you look at uh, uh, Shopify, which provides a software and an e-commerce platform for companies to sell whatever they want to sell. Um, it's a Canadian domiciled company, so it was very natural for, I believe, the Canadian government to go out and, you know, use them as one of the vendors. And um, given that their software is cloud-based and some of the the requirements are that you have to make sure that, you know, you 
track the entire supply chain of cannabis uh, from, you know, the seed to supply. And also you want to know uh, to make sure that you have, you know, enough data encryption and privacy regulations in place so that, you know, the, the customer data is not leaked. So because of those two reasons, I think, you know, Shopify was a natural choice. All right, Anurag, let's, if Tom Keene were speaking, let's rip up the script because you say that uh, IBM, you point out that it's having its biggest one-day decline since 2016. And this comes, of course, off their disappointing earnings that sort of point to some issues with their cloud computing and artificial intelligence units. Is this a huge deal or is this an overreaction by markets? Oh, well, we wrote about this even before earnings that, you know, the last push that they got from some kind of, you know, you could say glimmers of hope was through their systems division, which is a mainframe refresh. They get about two to three years. But if you peel that off, you know, they're they're betting the entire company on Watson and artificial intelligence. And a large portion of those products are in a division called Cognitive Solutions. And I mean, that, you know, it was down 5% in constant currency. That's a, that's a massive drop in our view. And I think that's what's driving this particular, um, you know, sell-off. And we need to understand whether they can recover from this or not. So do you think that they can? It's going to be tough, especially given that, uh, you know, the market's getting very competitive and there are enough, you know, cloud-based software companies out there. Uh, Amazon selling its artificial intelligence tools, enterprise artificial intelligence tools. Microsoft is selling it. Google is selling it. Um, I mean, these uh, IBM will have to do something drastic and something, you know, completely, I would say, um, urgently. Uh, otherwise, you know, people are not going to like uh, sales you know, being negative, let's say, in the next uh, couple of years. That's not going to go well with them. Anurag, how did IBM miss this? It's tough, uh, Pim, as I've said it for, uh, for the last several years. I mean, this is a company which has a fair amount of uh, legacy IT services business. And um, sooner or later, a large portion of data centers are being closed down. People are moving workloads to the cloud. People are actually sometimes renting uh, somebody else's data center. No, no, I know all this, but how did IBM miss this trend? Oh, you mean to say from a large, I would have to go back to Mr. Sam Palmasino and ask him this thing. This goes way beyond, uh, you know, even earlier than Ginny Romero's uh, days, because um, this this movement has been going on for over 10 years. And uh, IBM, I think, you know, was, was a laggard at that point. So I'm just looking right now. So IBM is considered one of the big giants, the stalwarts of the tech universe in the United States, has an A rating, uh, has a whole bunch of debt. Do you see this sort of miss and their missing of the trend to be a permanent blemish that going forward they cannot recover from will end up degrading their credit rating and create a uh, downward spiral for them? So I'm not sure about the credit rating part of it because at the end of the day, you know, one division was down five, the other one was two. You know, if you're going to be looking at zero to two percent growth, you know, you're going to probably make the same amount of money next year to the year after. But if you're a tech company, you know, investors want to see growth, at right. least equity investors do. So from that point of view, I think the biggest question is, can they show positive growth over the next couple of years? And yesterday's results puts a big question mark to it because, you know, as I said, one of the most promising divisions, that's the one where the shortfall was. Yeah. Anurag Rana, thank you so much for being with us. Anurag Rana is Senior Analyst of Software and IT Services at Bloomberg Intelligence. And IBM does have more than $41 billion of debt, um, which, you know, isn't massive compared to their cap, market cap compared to, say, I don't know, a Netflix out there or one of the others, but definitely interesting. And shares are plunging today after their disappointing earnings last night. 
Our guest is Ben Emmons. He is the chief economist and head of credit portfolio management at Intellectus Partners. He is also a contributor to Bloomberg Opinion. He's based in Los Angeles. Ben, thank you very much for being with us. Talk, if you can, about the independence of the Federal Reserve and how many interest rate increases you see in 2019 after the midterm elections. Good morning, Pim, and Lisa, thanks very much for having me. Um, well, the, the Fed independence is very much there. I think that, that the recent comments by Bostich or even Kaplan uh, have indicated clearly that, you know, we're staying the course here. Powell will not come out himself maybe saying this, but clearly they're going to stay the course um, and that's really cemented by this labor market strength. That, for example, Jolt's data yesterday shows that that you know they can keep that gradual rate hike pace intact, which I think we will see another three rate hikes into the middle of 2019, which will bring us closer to that three percent number on the Fed funds rate, which is sort of their long-term neutral rate. I think that's where they're heading. It does seem like that's what is being priced into the market. Ben, I'd love to get your opinion uh, just on something that happened yesterday to not a lot of fanfare. There was uh, the first time ever that the Treasury Department sold eight-week Treasury bills, two-month Treasury bills. And I don't know if this is wrong to say, but it was not a good auction. And I've seen sort of some distortions in the front end of the Treasury market in response with three-month Treasury yields climbing uh, at a disproportionate rate. Do you think this was a mistake at the Treasury Department's part? So it's an interesting uh, dynamic there, as you're highlighting, Lisa, because you know this is like a really short-term gap measure, if you think about it, right? You finance the deficit really short-term, and uh, not all of it, of course, but like it, it's one of those measures, and two months, right, which brings us, you know, basically at the end of the year. So, you know, I think what the market is trying to indicate is like all this sort of supply that then needs to be rolled over again is what I think causes some of that distortion. The other part I think is happening is that we're going again towards this year-end effect on bank balance sheets, right? That, that tends to be the case when they withdraw some of their balance sheet to fund uh, other people's balance sheets. And therefore, I think you get some distortion in money market rates too, which includes treasury bills. Why maybe some of this bidding wasn't that strong in the, in the treasury bill market. That being said, though, if you think about treasury bills as in safe asset, it's still very much in demand, right? So I don't think that the distortion itself is a, is, is a signal that the demand for safe assets has necessarily changed. Ben, let's go overseas if we can for just a moment. I want to get your thoughts on what is happening in Italy and the European Union and the Italian government's budget. Yeah, so, you know, the headlines again today are just very European, uh, Pim. If you think about that, you have the European Commission that wants Italy to stick with the rules. And of course, Italy proposes a budget that's, you know, not sticking with the rules. And you see Salvini just out now saying, let us just do the work. And then you have the Intesa, you know, chairman coming out like, wow, we don't know, we're going to support and, and the idea of rules and we're going to stick with that. So you have this noise, right? And what it does is, is in, in particular in European bond markets, gives this perception that, there will be a standoff idea that just like Schauble with uh, Theresa of uh, Tsipras in the past in Greece, that that creates a widening of spreads, just uncertainty gets priced in there. Ultimately, Italy will likely go its way and does this budget of 2.4%. And then there's a question about how they're going to moderate it over the, over the time that comes after that in terms of you know controlling the deficit, because clearly Italian rates have risen much higher with this view that that debt load is becoming more problematic uh, from here. How much further do you expect Italian yields to rise, though? I mean, are we just sort of at the beginning or middle, end of the widening? 
so if you think about what happened in the in the uh, debt crisis a number of years ago when we were at 7% in, in Italian yields that was really pricing Italy essentially being out of the eurozone out of the monetary union and so i don't think we'll go to that direction just yet this three and a half percent seems to me more like what markets are indicating that in order to run a deficit like uh, like 2.4 percent and a debt to gdp ratio well over 100 in order to stabilize the uh, the debt to gdp ratio there needs to be a higher risk premium right in order to to uh, compensate for that and i think this is why three and a half percent on the 10 year is sort of reflecting and we could go up a little bit more from here because if this uncertainty remains about, you know, approving this budget, markets will price an uncertainty into a higher yield. So since we're in Europe and we're overseas, I want to get your thoughts on Turkey, which has been dealing with a currency crisis and then decides, well, it's ebbed a little bit. We've released that pasture. Uh, we're going to now sell dollar bonds, $2 billion of them. Would you be a buyer of Turkish dollar bonds right now? So I think that that greatly depends upon the stability of the Turkish lira itself. Uh, the, the central bank has responded and, and there's been some, you know, if you think about the debate about central bank independence, which clearly was at, at stake in Turkey, given the relationship with Erdogan and the central bank, I would be very cautious about dollar bonds just yet for Turkey because I'm not so sure if the central bank will follow on with more rate hike measures to control the inflation, which is really spiraling right now. And so the Turkish lira has been temporarily, I think, stabilized, but it stays very weak, right? It hasn't really rallied any further from here. So I would not be necessarily an investor in dollar bonds in Turkey at this moment. Ben Emmons, thank you so much for being thank with you. us. Ben Emmons is chief economist and head of credit portfolio management at Intellectus Partners, LLC, in Los Angeles. He's also a contributor to Bloomberg Opinion. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.